Good afternoon, uh, everybody. Um, I'm Trevor Emsley, and Peter Dax is on the other side of a computer screen. Today is the 22nd of June, uh, a day that always causes me to rejoice because the 21st is the shortest day in the Southern Hemisphere, and the night of the 21st is the longest night. And so from today, the days start getting longer. Um, and even though it might get cold, at least the sun rises earlier and that's always a comfort to those of us who live in a sunny country. Anyway, so that, that simply dates it. Our topic today is um, the pay now, argue later uh, principle. Peter, do you want to say hello before we get into it? <laughs> Thanks, Trevor. Nice to see you again. And yeah, as you say, it'd be really nice to start getting some slightly longer days and shorter nights. Eh? So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Right, um, so the, the pain now, argue later principle has been with us for some time, mm. uh, but I thought I would just mention a couple of cases. Um, and the first one I'd like to mention was Medcash case, which uh, is a very long judgment. It's a judgment of the Constitutional Court. And Medcash tried to, in fact, in the, in the court below, the court below found, found that the pain now, argue later principle was, was unconstitutional and violated certain provisions of the constitution. And, uh, you know, we could, we could spend from now until next week discussing this case and it's, it's extremely long, but the court held um, that uh, uh, the, the pay now argue later principle in a VAT act, because it was VAT that was involved uh, in, in the Medcash case um, that, it, that it did pass constitutional muster. And some of the reason for that was that taxpayers could um, approach the court for interdictory relief, uh, if so health. Um, and, uh, you know, I've got, I've got the head note in front of me. Um, let me just read from, from one of the points. The principle of pay now argue later was one which was adopted in many open and democratic societies and in many of these jurisdictions as well. Some scheme for the immediate execution against the taxpayer was provided to ensure that the rule was efficacious, which suggested that it was accepted as reasonable in societies based on freedom, dignity and equality as required by section 36 of the constitution. Um, further, the effect of the pay now argue label on the individual taxpayers was ameliorated by the discretionary power conferred on the commissioner to suspend its operation. Even if section 45 of the VAT Act therefore constituted a limitation on the right entrenched for institution, it was a limitation which was justified within the meaning of section 36 of the constitution. Accordingly, section 36, 142, 42A and 45 of the act did not ask the jurisdiction of the courts of law to the extent that it could be argued that section 45 limited and aggrieved vendors access to an ordinary court of law. Such limitation was justified under section 36 of the constitution. So, um, pay now argue later principle was um, approved as passing constitutional muster and by the constitutional court um, and uh, the attempt to have it set aside being unconstitutional fair. Um, then there's another case um, 
called Capstone and another, this is SARS. Um, it was in 2008, it was reported in 2011, and it was a decision of the High Court, uh, Mr. Justice Bins Ward. Um, this was prior to the enactment of the Tax Administration Act. It was under the old Section 88 of the Income Tax Act. But the, the pay now argulator principle in the Income Tax Act underwent a revision before the Tax Administration Act came in. And there were two taxpayers involved here. And in the one case, um, an application had been made under the old section and, and the decision was then given uh, negatively under the new provision. Um, and in the second one, uh, suspension had been granted under the old provision, but it was then revoked under the new provision. And again, um, Judge Bins Ward held, held that the new provision was really just, ex the way he put it was, it was expositionary of what the, the, the position was under, under the old provision, just spelled out certain things more clearly. And even went so far as to say, well, that actually makes it easier for taxpayers to challenge um, a decision by SARS not to suspend. Um, one interesting thing um, of this judgment, which puzzled me at the time, um, and still puzzles me somewhat, but, but can be used to the advantage of taxpayers if they're alive to the point, um, is that uh, we criticize these provisions on the basis that the old section 88 did not expressly enjoin the commissioner to have regard to the merits of the appeal when determining a request for suspension of payment. Um, Judge Benz Ward held that in fact it um, and it expressly referred to the merits of the appeal as a relevant consideration. And he said this followed from the provision in subsection four, which authorized the commissioner to refuse a request if he was satisfied that the appeal was frivolous or vexatious. Um, so what he was saying is that when you consider whether something is frivolous or vexatious, you have to have regard to the merits of the appeal. Now, I must have confessed, maybe I'm just uh, not up to speed on this, but I, I would have thought that that was a slightly different test. Whether something is frivolous or vexatious goes, I would have thought to the bona fides of, of the request. Um, the merits are a separate matter. Um, so so you, you might have a fully bona fide application, but the merits might be against you or the merits might be for you. Uh, whether something where something's frivolous or vexatious, to me that suggests that you're not bona fide. So that, to me there are difference, differences of opinion, but certainly the, the, that reference to uh, frivolous or vexatious is now in section 164 of the Tax Administration Act. And on the this judgment of Judge Burns Ward in the Capstone case, uh, decision of the Cape Provincial Division, um, one can require SARS to have regard to the merits of the taxpayer's appeal um, on, on the findings of Judge Burns Ward. Um, Peter, do you want to have something no, to I say about I think so. I mean, as, as you say, it's now the case law is now being overtaken by statute. So the Tax Administration Act now deals with suspension of payment applications. 
And, you know, I always say, Trevor, it's your first big fight. You know, clients come after an assessment and they say, what's the next step? And they're thinking we're going to be talking about objection and heading off to tax court. And my point to them is always your first fight is basically keeping your money, you know, arguing that you successfully apply for a suspension of payment application. And why? Because, you know, as you know, it can take three years, maybe four years to get to the tax court. So from your assessment, it can take three, four years to get to the tax court. And if you've paid upfront, you know, a lot of clients say that alters the whole sort of dynamic of the dispute process. You know, you've paid across the money and they often say, why would SARS then come to the settlement table? They've got your money. So I always sort of describe it as your first sort of big fight um, and your first big test. Um, and I think one of the things that clients don't realize is the principle, but that, that your finalization of audit letter is an assessment, which you'll have seen millions of those, but it's often just a long letter that sets out SARS's position on various aspects and rebuts certain comments that you may have, may have made in earlier correspondence. But it says somewhere, this letter is an assessment and that often clients don't pick up on that. <clears throat> And once you get the assessment, um, you owe SARS money. Uh, in respect of dividends tax, I think it's payable immediately. In respect of income tax, it's payable on the payment date, which is the end of the next month. But still, there's a tax debt that is now due and owing to SARS. And clients often say, well, so what? You know, what are they going to do? There's a tax debt, but so what? What does that mean? And Section uh, 172, I think it is, of the Tax Administration Act, says that SARS on the back of an assessment can go off to a court and they can make a statement to the court uh, and the court then on the basis uh, uh, of that statement that becomes uh, equivalent to a civil judgment for a liquid debt and that's enforceable they can go off to give it to the sheriff and the sheriff can come knocking on your door they have to give you 10 business days notice at this point that um, you know, it has, it has real teeth. Um, and I think it's quite interesting in the context of you often read in papers about tax revolts. It's going to be a tax revolt. We're not paying our tax. And I often think, you know, SARS have got, in the tax administration, they've got proper teeth. You know, they can issue an assessment and then they can enforce the assessment through the Section 172 notice and um, come and collect. Um, so it's not, a, it's, 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 it gives lot of sort of power you know there is the ability to apply for suspension of payment and that's section 164 of the tax administration act and you know we should chat about that a bit and what that does though is from the minute that you submit your suspension of payment application to SARS SARS can't proceed against you in relation to the tax debt until they've given you notice of how they've responded to your application um, and it's 10 days after they've come back with their response that they can then enforce against that tax debt. So my advice to clients is always um, get your suspension of payment application in as soon as possible. And then the balls and SARS is caught and they need to come back and give you a response. And it's only after they've given you a response, you've still got 10 days after which that tax debt becomes enforceable. And I don't know what your experience is, Trevor, on that, but, you know, it's often, there's a lot of toing and fraying, and it's often quite difficult to know when SARS has definitively come back in the spirit of a suspension of payment application, because it's a, it's quite a fluid process, I find. 
um, but but the, the the position is that an, until SARS have made their decision, whether it's favorable or unfavorable, and if it's unfavorable, you have ten business days off, and they can't take any steps against exactly. the I exactly should right. mention an instance, and of course I won't mention any, any anyone's names, but a taxpayer noticed uh, that without any warning, um, a substantial amount of money had, had, had disappeared out of that taxpayer's account. It was an individual person. Yeah. And uh, then there were five years of assessment involved. And a, a, a suspension of the obligation to pay request had been made about a year beforehand. Nothing had been heard. And then suddenly letters were received after the money had, had disappeared, saying um, that we, we acknowledge re receipt of your suspension request, dated such and such, and that date was the day before the letter declining it, although it had been submitted a year before. So I never clear error i mean what mm. <laughs> it mm. implies that sars receives a request and then the following day gives the result this mm. was a year that was it was clearly wrong i mean there was an error staring one in the face um, mm. and these things came and they took the money out of the account and, and um, sure. the taxpayer then had, had to um threaten to to and not only threaten but actually did bring an application in because no no decision had been made by SARS. And then when it was drawn to the attention of the right people, they were very apologetic and they undertook to withdraw it, but, but didn't do so straight away and went out to go to court and have it postponed. And then eventually the thing was withdrawn and costs were tendered by SARS and all of that. But it was all, you know, quite quite nerve-wracking for the taxpayer concerned. And, and the upshot of it was that SARS has now granted suspension request so it's a satisfaction for the taxpayer but but you know it just seems like the left hand of size didn't know what the right hand was doing yeah that's... And, and how these things happen i honestly don't know i have no idea so one has to be careful this has to take this possibility seriously i agree with you yeah. always when i can't remember if we did so at the objection stage or at the appeal stage i think it was at the appeal stage um Put, it, put in a, a request for suspension at the same time. And just on that, Trevor, because I find that those uh, suspension of payment applications are handled by the debt management uh, division at SARS. So, you know, it goes to a slightly different department to the assessors, if you like, uh, in, in my experience. Um, and I find that quite often they come back with the offer of a partial suspension. So quite often we'll go in with our client and say, we ask for a full suspension and argue for a full suspension. And quite often, SARS will come back and say, we'll grant you a partial suspension. That partial suspension is often around 50%. And you need to pay the 50% in installments. And so that seems to be a fairly common sort of occurrence that we've seen in practice. And there's no, you know, there's no basis for that 50% and installments. So if you feel like you have a strong case for a full suspension, then you can go and review and we can talk later about what the review process is, but I think there is a fairly sort of standard practice that I've seen sort of develop in terms of a partial suspension, firstly, and secondly, payment in installments over a period of months. 
and that's um you know i think that's a practice more than more than following the process to set out in section 164 where six, section 164.3 deals with the reasons for a taxpayer to apply for a suspension and the justification and a whole lot of statutory factors that are quite interesting we can go through a few of them i think the first point is that they're not exclusive. So you can raise additional points besides those in section 164.3. I find the most interesting one is 164.3D, and that talks about whether the payment of the tax is going to result in irreparable hardship for the taxpayer, not justified by the prejudice to SARS or the fiscus if the tax is not paid. So it sort of implies a weighing up of interest between the taxpayer's interest and SARS's interest. And obviously the taxpayer can't argue SARS's case. We don't know what SARS needs the money for, and but you can argue your own case and the taxpayer's case. And I think the important point is that irreparable hardship doesn't mean what some taxpayers mean, that I'm gonna go bankrupt if I pay it. Obviously that's not the tip, it's just that you won't be put in the same position as you were before paying the tax. You know, so if you think about a taxpayer that's got illiquid assets, if it has to dispose of those assets, get cash, pay the cash to SARS, by the time it wins in court and gets the money back again, it either can't buy that asset or the price has moved. Um, you know, that's the kind of irreparable hardship that, that's relevant here. Um, you can't be put back in the same position. And it's very rare for clients to just have cash lying around. So often there is hardship and often it is irreparable in the sense that they can't be put in the same position because they'll end up having to dispose of an asset even if it's a bank for example that ties up capital um, or you could say a taxpayer could just go to a bank and borrow money but that ties up lines to the bank that it could otherwise use for funding working capital expansion of its business etc so there often there's quite a strong case Trevor I find in respect to this irreparable hardship point um, and as I say, it doesn't mean that you're going to go bankrupt if you make the payment to SARS. It's, it's, a, it's a much more lenient test than that. But I find that's a very sort of interesting one. What I haven't seen is, is SARS's counter to that, you know, being, well, we need the money for X or Y, Z. And I suppose ultimately, if it came in front of a court, they'd have to weigh those two up against each other. I'm just looking at section 164 now, it's subsection five. It says, a senior SARS official may deny, deny a request in terms of subsection two or revoke a decision to suspend payment in terms of subsection three with immediate effect if satisfied that A, after the lodging of the objection or appeal, the objection or appeal is frivolous or vexatious. That's, that's, that's that point. About that's your point. About to yeah. The yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. I think one of the other things they look at is whether the disputed tax, the recovery of the disputed tax is going to be in jeopardy or whether there's the risk of dissipation of assets. So they're, they're looking at, um, you know, is the taxpayer going to use the money to dissipate assets so that when SARS wins in court in three years' time, they can't collect against it. And there, I think there's a Carmel trading case, there's an SEA case in 2008, talked about a dissipation order and what that meant. And that really meant a taxpayer kind of wasting or secreting assets so as to avoid a particular event, for example, in this case, the payment of tax. So that's something that the taxpayer needs to sort of overcome and say there obviously won't be any risk of, of the tax not being paid. 
So yeah, you your best. Know, you and I don't act for dissipators or <laughs> I, I was going to say that often doesn't come up in practice, which is which is a good thing. That's not something you want to be involved in. Um, and then the security is quite interesting as well, Trevor, because that's quite a, that's a bit of a strategic one. Because one of the questions is, has the taxpayer tendered the security? So the question is, is it necessary? Yeah, and sometimes our clients say, well, they'll invite SARS to say, well, SARS, do you need security? And we invite you to discuss what security you need if you do, in fact, need security. And, and we can talk about um, how that's made. The taxpayers don't go in first up by tendering security. It's a question of like, what do you give SARS? What do they want? And um, there's so many different ways of providing security. So I think that's more of a conversation, but you need to deal with it in your application. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, just the ones I've been involved in, very often this is used as a checklist of, of mm. so, you know, the first thing is whether the recovery of the disputed tax will be in, in jeopardy, whether be a risk of dissipation. A, be the compliance history of the taxpayer with SARS. Again, you and I deal with taxpayers exemplary <laughs> compliance record. See whether fraud is prima facie involved in the origin of the dispute. I mean, if fraud yeah. is involved, you can forget any, any request. For Absolutely, security. yeah. Absolutely. And then there's the irreparable hardship point and then security. Mm. Mm. And as, as I said, those aren't exclusive. So if you've got other points to make, then you need to you need to make them, you know, and to, and to bring in those points that you realize about it not being vexatious. Um, you know, the taxpayer really intends to defend. It's not just um, an exercise in futility. So I think bringing those points into the application are, are important. Um, and if you've got, and if there is a possibility of a review, you obviously want your application for suspension to be as powerful and as detailed as possible. And I think with compliance history, it's often good for a taxpayer to actually put in a table and show your compliance history for as long as you've got it, show that you've submitted your returns on time for X number of years, at least three years, put that in. That's, that goes in front of SARS and you know, they, they need to dispute it if, if in fact they can dispute it. So I think this suspension of payment application is a very important document and needs to be treated in that fashion. Yeah, and, and I would think that um, in many instances, you know, when, while, while, while preparing the request, one should have at the back of my mind a, a possible um, review application if the request is denied. And obviously, it depends 100%. on the system. Um, and and also, what, what SARS says, if SARS says no, you know, what are their reasons? They've got to give reasons for their decision. And, uh, you know, but when, you know, it's not, it's not a case of one size fits all. No, that's that's exactly the point, Trevor. It's taxpayer by taxpayer. It's not it's not one size fits all. There's an interesting sort of counter argument, and I have heard this sort of said sometimes a little bit in jest, but you know, some some people say, especially some some people working in the financial services industry say, well, let's pay SARS, because if you pay SARS and you win, you get your money back plus interest of I think it's currently seven percent, which is a high rate. And you take no credit risk because you've got government risk. So what a great way to sort of make a deposit. But as I said, it's often tongue in cheek because it's not your business. Your business is not a tax dispute. And, and it's not certain when it's going to go to court. As I said, it can take at least three years. 
it ties up your capital and that's just not an efficient way to run a business but it is interesting that the, and it it needs to be made that you if you win in court you get your money back and you get interest which of course is taxable but I know, um, conversely if i know if taxpayers have been very unhappy with the way that SARS calculates the interest and that's yeah. interesting in fact the bank said that and uh, mm -hmm. you know even in being involved in litigation where they go to court and saying that SARS has whipped up the interest wrongly and so mm -hmm. i'd be careful of that attitude mm -hmm. <laughs> and the converse is if you don't, if you don't pay now and you end up losing in court in three years time then obviously you pay interest on that amount so i mean it cuts both ways uh, the rate uh, the rate's the same and so but but i've yet to meet a tax says you know it's a really good idea for me to make payment up front and that's why it's quite a weird concept the pay and argulator because instead of contractual and intellectual disputes you just don't have that you you, you keep your money until you lose in court so it is it's it's kind of a weird concept that we've sort of got used to through our tax system but it is it is a bit counterintuitive and that's why i described as sort of the first the first fight if you like when you're in tax litigation and i think just just on the review trevor maybe we're just <coughs> touching on that as well because as you said it's um um, if you if you submit your application for suspension and and it's and it's detailed and it's reasoned and SARS come back comes back and says no I'm not going to suspend or that maybe they give you suspension terms that aren't acceptable then one needs to consider review and review is obviously under promotion of administrative justice act so there's been an administrative action the commissioner has decided something or a senior SARS official has decided something. And if that decision is sort of inter alia irrational, then you can go under Pudger yeah. and and have it have it reviewed. And I think that's becoming a bit more popular now. We've seen SARS being taken on review in various contexts recently. Mm -hmm. And I think um reviews in relation to suspension of payments are, are also something that, that need to be considered depending on the circumstances. Yeah. So you know, I, I don't think one can offer advice in a vacuum obviously one can't but but i think the one thing one can say is that when an assessment is received and there's a substantial amount involved um, a request for suspension of payment should always be considered and taken very seriously at that early stage and as you say to to submit to submit it in a detailed application so that that will help your review if, if you if you send a detailed application for suspension and SARS comes back with a one-liner theoretically saying no, that obviously plays well in terms of your review prospects and in terms of the administrative action taken by SARS. And I think I think also in the review, what we've seen is that when you apply for a review of a suspension of payment, you then write to SARS and say, please agree not to collect the tax until pending the outcome of the review process, which can take a number of months. And SARS will be to come back and say yes or no. If they say no, you can then apply for an interdict, interdicting SARS from collecting prior to the outcome of the review process. And we had a client that successfully interdicted SARS a couple of years ago on that basis um, in Pretoria. And the judge um, found very easily in favor of the taxpayer in those circumstances. You know, why, why wouldn't you interdict SARS? There's a review process going on, and the outcome will determine whether the suspension is, is correctly. So, um, I think, as I say, that's becoming quite sort of common, these, these review processes. Okay, well, um, 
may now argue later survives mm -hmm. and we have to live with it. Um, but we'll focus on the argue side. <laughs> <laughs> That's very well put. <laughs> yeah, Peter, thanks for nice. the chat. Nice chatting as always. And then good. Next time. Yeah. Cheers, Anne.